Hello, and welcome back to Season 3 of About This Writing Thing, The Interviews. I am your host, Sayward B. Eller, novelist and MFA, amongst other things. <laughs> I don't really have any updates to give you other than I am working on a novella that I hope to release next year. And, of course, I'm still waiting on beta readers to get back to me with the feedback on my historical. I am also revising one of my contemporaries for my agent who is expecting that soon and I'm waiting on some feedback from my agent about my current work in progress. So that is everything that's going on with me. I will, of course, update everyone on when those titles are coming out next year in my newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed and you want to keep up with what I'm doing, I do have a quarterly newsletter. It will go out again in November and it will cover updates like cover reveals, titles, and upcoming publishing dates. Okay, now that housekeeping is out of the way, I would love to introduce you to today's guest. Published independently and traditionally, I am very happy and proud to welcome to About This Writing Thing, my friend, award-winning author, Carrie Chappett. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, I mean, I knew that you would, but I'm just so glad that you said yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, I'm not going to miss a chance to chit-chat with you about writing stuff. Same here. <laughs> so, um, in my introduction, I said that you are indie published, which we know that you have the two titles, um, The Things That We Carry, and My Boring Life. So, if we can talk a little bit about your, because you're also traditionally published through Black Rose Publishing, you have your award-winning Daughter of the King, and you have the second in the Defying the Crown series coming out next year, as well as another title coming out, and I'm not sure if you've actually announced that yet, so, like, the title of the actual book, so. Oh, oh, I have, yes, Chasing Eleanor is a YA historical coming out later in 2023. Yes, and I know when it's coming out, and you know when it's coming out, but... Yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. I already put it out on, on in my newsletter and stuff, so we're good. Okay, cool. All right, so um, the second in the Defying the Crown series will be out in March of next year, 2023, and then Chasing Eleanor will be out in June. And right. anyone who wants to subscribe to your newsletter, will I'll put it in the description box for the podcast and on the YouTube channel. But do you want to go ahead and tell them your website address? Yeah, yeah, I'm at carriewrites.com, um, and yeah, I love connecting with readers or anyone who just loves, you know, writing and history and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you love historical fiction as much as I love historical fiction, but you write primarily historical fiction. I mean, that is your kind of bag. So do you want to talk a little bit about what drew you to the genre and why you chose to kind of write there specifically? Yeah, I think it's probably the same with everyone. You don't really choose a genre. It just sort of chooses you, you know? Um, and I think when I started really becoming a reader in my early 20s, I was trying to read all these contemporary books, and they were like, okay, they're fine. But the ones that, like, I was hooked on and I couldn't put down were all historical. So I've been an avid historical fiction reader for 20 years, and it just seemed kind of natural that I'd be telling some kind of historical story and you know um, some people know this about me but uh, I was raised by a U.S. history teacher and it just played a huge part in my life um, 
this was back in the 80s before they had like AP classes and stuff. So my dad used to host his honors history class in my living room every Thursday night from the time I was a little kid. So I would hide behind the couch or hide behind this like pony wall and and I would listen to these high schoolers. Every Thursday they'd come over and they'd have these huge, like lively, crazy debates where they'd all be debating these different topics from history. Um, and so I think I just grew up with history being very much alive around me and I was really fascinated by these stories. But as you and I have talked about, you know, I was like, where are the women? Like, why are we not talking about women in history? And from a very young age, I recognize that. And so I think when you start writing all of these things that you subconsciously have been carrying around your whole life, they, they find their way out into stories. And so I didn't realize when I started writing that I cared so much about bringing out stories of women from history, but that's exactly where it takes me. Okay. I did the same thing when I was studying history. I was a graduate student in history and Every paper that I did always gravitated toward women's place in history because we learn all about the men who won history. And I I always tried to talk about the, the people who weren't talked about as much because in history, what do we learn about in school? We learn about military history. We don't learn about the social history. And that's really where the important, to me, that's where the important thing is. And that's right where women are and that's right where minorities are. And so it's, I think it's really important that we have authors who are embracing the historical genre and telling those stories. So you know how, you know how I feel about it. So I love Daughter of the King, and I think that everyone should read it. Tell me a little bit, because it's set in 17th century France and yeah. Canada. So around, um, it's not quite, it's a little bit later than 1619, which is where all the Jamestown stuff started. But in your, in the first novel, This is about Isabel, and she is from La Rochelle in France, where the Protestants are currently, 17th century currently, being um, massacred by the Catholics. And she gets away. And do you want to talk a little bit about just the process of researching that time period, especially with, if you don't speak or read French fluently, how was that process when you were researching that era you know it was tough I'll be honest I mean um and I am not a historian like you I didn't you know get a degree in this by any means so I just kept reading um a lot of textbooks were really helpful they're so dry and (laughs) so it was so boring sometimes to get through just just pages and pages and pages to find one little tiny detail and you're like okay great I can use that the good thing is I don't know if it's good or not it was not ideal at the time but I had started writing this book just purely from the emotional part of it of what Isabel might have felt like to be a Protestant almost in hiding in a Catholic country so I just sort of started writing that like almost free writing so it was connected to a little bit more of the emotion of it and then as I started sort of structuring the the story which of course got rewritten I don't know how many times um I started researching at that point to find kind of the bigger issues and the details so it was kind of nice because I already had my character in my mind on a personal level and um 
you know, I kind of had to break it apart in two pieces. I had to really understand the Protestant struggle, which was kind of, it was hard to understand. You're like, these people were literally not even doing anything and they just had a different belief system. Like, why were they so, you know, heavily persecuted? But that was part of the process of trying to understand the motivations behind people's actions. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a challenge. It was a lot of research, a lot of reading and, and I still don't quite understand a lot of it. A lot of it is still kind of beyond my understanding, but, um, but yeah, it was great to spend the time doing that. Um, especially as I was rewriting and then I kept getting to add in a little bit more historical detail. So that when I sat down to write the sequel, I already had so much of that in my mind, like the big picture stuff was already there. So that was nice. So I just had to more research, you know, specific de details in regards to, you know, like what the houses would have looked like in Quebec in 1667. So things like that. Um, and it was really, it was like the big picture stuff and understanding the world at the time. That is what I found um, just time consuming. Oh, yes. And uh, like whenever I'm researching, I have a really difficult time when I'm researching for my historical fiction because I really want to focus on the primary sources, the sources that were written during the time from the people who were experiencing them. So I don't always like to focus on the secondary sources, which are kind of the interpretation of what happened. So I like to kind of hear it from the horse's mouth, I guess, is yeah. is what I'm saying. And you know, um, the one that is set in the Great Depression was so much easier to do that with because there's memoirs, there's tons of firsthand accounts 1665 or 1661 not so much so one thing i really found helpful was google translate mm -hmm. so i could pull up um documents from french canada at the time and like actual um marriage contracts for these women and i was able to put on google translate it's not perfect obviously but you actually get the gist of you know how many ox they got and you know how much land they got and everything so that was really helpful now, um, you talked about this uh, Chasing Eleanor is set during the Depression, and since it's coming out next year, um, so it does make sense that it would be easier to locate those primary sources because more people could read and more people could yeah. write at the time. So, do you want to talk a little bit about your, did your process for researching Chasing Eleanor did it differ vastly from your process for researching Daughter of the King and um, Daughter of Shadows? I think so, because um, I couldn't find memoirs from the 17th century. I really couldn't. I found one account of a kid who lived in Quebec at the time. Um, and again, though, like, I'm guessing the 15-year-old was probably not writing this account. Maybe someone else was. So, yeah, it was really hard. Whereas the Great Depression has been pretty um heavily examined you know and so there's just massive amounts of memoirs of specifically older individuals looking back on their life like years after what it was like to grow up in the depression so i loved that because we're talking about people that had survived this really hard but fascinating time of history and then you know 50 years later they're able to kind of go back there with some perspective and that was just, that was a dream, you know, as far as a historical fiction writer goes. And so um, I didn't get that in the 17th century. I kind of had to fill in a lot of the, the blanks just with my imagination. 
one thing I noticed, there were some parallels between Daughter of Shadows, which hasn't come out yet, um, yeah. between Daughter of Shadows and Chasing Eleanor. And that is when you were talking about whenever, um, I can't remember which character it was, but um, it may have been Isabel recounting how hungry they were. And yeah. just the things that they had to resort to eating. And it's the same thing with Magnolia and Chasing Eleanor. You you see this struggle for, you know, just this struggle for survival. So that's the parallels that I see with all of your writing is this struggle to survive and ultimately overcoming and yeah. being the stronger person because of what you've gone through. And I think that that really points to life experience also because we're all just trying to survive and and that's one of the yeah. things that I find really relatable about your stories is these main characters even though Isabel is 17th century French she feels as current as Magnolia and as current as a character from 2022 even though there yeah. are those differences of character it's still the base instinct is to survive and to do something good in the world so yeah I love that you say that because I've known that subconsciously but I don't know that I've ever kind of put that forward in my mind as like these are the kind of stories you like but I have to say it's similar to your writing as well in the sense that the thing the question that fascinates me is how do we overcome childhood trauma like how do we take this lot in life that you've been given um, that might have not been very fair or not been, you know, what you wanted it to be. And how do you make that into something positive? How, like you said, how do you survive? Not just physically, but emotionally. And um, yeah, it's definitely a question I probably will continue to evaluate. Me too. <laughs> now, you talked about uh, the many revisions of Daughter of the King. And I also know that you had many revisions of Chasing Eleanor. Now, yeah. I am a revision writer, but you are a writer who might have 80,000 words. You realize the story is not working. You toss out 80,000 words and you start over from zero. I can't imagine doing that, <laughs> but I know that there. It's not fun. It's not fun. <laughs> I know that there are many authors who do this, who say, "Okay, this isn't working. Let me toss it out and let me start over again." For those of us who can't imagine doing that, can you explain, or or just kind of? I, I know you can't really explain it, but can you just kind of give me a little insight as to what exactly goes through your mind when you toss out 80,000 words? <laughs> you know, um, okay, so I've done it twice, like full, taking the whole thing and put it in, in a file and never looked at it again. Um, as hard as it was, the first story I did that with was Chasing Eleanor because I was still learning to be a writer, right? It was only my third book, and... Um, it was an emotional story for me. And so I think it was just that constant need to get to the next level. And so when I finished the first draft of Chasing Eleanor, I knew I had problems, but I thought, okay, my critique partners will be able to tell me how I can fix it. And, you know, they're, they're, we're all friends, and so we can be lovingly honest with each other. And they kind of said, this is not the story you set out to write. And the moment they said that, I was like, you're right. And so I think it's just being really, really honest with, where you're at, and I could have pieced it together to make it better, but in, in my head, I was like, I feel more secure at this point, being able to just take what worked out of that first story and start fresh, and it gave me, for a, for a pantser, you know, like 
for you and I are both dancers. Yes. Um, it, in a way, it was like writing with a thought for the first time. It was like, oh, I have direction now. I'm not just going to fly off and, you know, to all these different directions. And it's interesting because both of the stories that I have rewritten from word one have been just, I've loved the end product. It's actually a really great process because you just, it's almost like free writing your mm -hmm. first draft and then you go, well, I like about 10% of this. So I'm going to take that 10% that resonates with me and I'm going to really sit down to write the right, the correct draft. So yeah, I kind of almost consider it free writing and I write so fast that I'm not ever, this is why I always say, I'm, I always let myself write the wrong thing and it's okay to do that. And you know, you're not going to, um, you're not going to come out with something perfect ever, but if you, I feel like every story can be fixed with, with time and edits and, and a little bit of talking it out. And so for me, sometimes it's easier just to go back to drawing word and start with a clean slate and take what I've learned from the first one and be like, okay, let's go do the next one. I'm hoping that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I have not. I don't do that. <laughs> but if it happens, it happens. But, you know, when you said that it's like writing with a plot, with an outline, I feel the same way when I go back and I'm revising and I'm adding those things and fleshing out and taking out and putting in. I feel that way. I'm like, okay, I have a roadmap now because I've written the whole story. I, ha I know everything that happens. So now I can think about the story and I can go back and I can say, okay, these are the things that I need to do. I need to make my characters a little deeper. I need to build the conflict. I need to do this. So we do the same thing. You're just a little braver than I am, and you just throw the whole thing out. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't. I can't well, throw my words. You're a, more, you're a more experienced writer than me, so I don't think your drafts are quite as messy as mine. But um, what's interesting that you said, it is character development for me that's always where I go wrong and I realize that part of the reason I kind of go in the wrong direction is I let myself get distracted when I'm writing with new characters, new sidelines, new plots, and it just keeps spinning and spinning and I roll with it because that's what pantsers do because you're like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, and then I realize like, no, I need to double down on the relationships I've already established. Mm -hmm. That's where I go wrong. I get that. I, I totally get that, especially since I know a little bit about your process and how you work, and, and I have seen it firsthand by reading your draft. So I get exactly what you're saying. And for me, my characters need to be de be developed more because they're so shallow. When I write my first draft, there's like it feels like there's nothing there to that character. So I have to go back and I have to say, okay, really think about this thing that they've been through or this, this thing that they're going through. And I really have to put myself inside of them during that revision draft so that I can get the emotions and the conflict yeah. and, and everything else that I need to make it a really powerful story. So, right, and because you write more leading up market and literary, it's even more important for your stories. That's why, you know, you have to keep deepening and deepening because the whole story is sort of hinging on that character development. Yeah, but I think that the same thing can be said overall because we do want to make sure that all of our characters are well developed unless of course they're the static characters that we don't really care about anyway and they are only there for a brief fleeting moment right right <laughs> but i think that you write that um, particular style because you're so good at character development because you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper um and i write a little more commercial and i don't like to go that deep <laughs> I, like, I like my emotional 
and you like very action-packed like yes. most historicals that we read are pretty passive and we've talked about this a lot yeah. that they might be great stories but they are very passive the characters yeah. are very passive and it becomes really frustrating when the characters and the story are so passive even though the story is good but yeah. with with your writing uh, you just keep the hits coming over and over and over and over so the reader doesn't really have time to catch their breath to say oh wow this is this is really this is a really slow part <laughs> so, well you know and it's been hard for me to um like a mentor that i've been working with for the past year or so um she keeps trying to teach me restraint and she's right because do you know how much bigger and crazier i want to get with plots but it gets too much at some point, and so I have to learn to like hold that back and only release it. So this is why my critique partner has mentioned that she thinks this is why I'm stepping into historical fantasy, so that I can I can let that need go wild in the fantasy part, and then show restraint in more of the like historical fiction based stuff. And I think she's right because that's what sort of drew me to um, like fantasy. You know, I don't write yes. fantasy, yes, yes, but. Um, because I, I do want to just go crazy big and wild with these plot ideas and, you know, it has to make sense. Mm -hmm. I, whole, I totally to see that. And I can't wait uh, to to read that fantasy. Yeah. That um, I mean, we can't really talk about it now, but I can't <laughs> wait. Now, you have been in the query trenches for about a year now, right? Well, I mean... Yeah, not nonstop, but um, gosh, when did I start with Chasing Eleanor? Um, I don't even remember. Has it? Oh gosh, it might have been a year. I, I think it's right. close to a year. Will you, for those listening who might be embarking on the process or who have been in the trenches for a while, can you kind of, can you just talk a little bit about how you handle the ups and downs? I already know the answer to this question, but... <laughs> I was like, with your help? <laughs> But I feel like it would yeah. be helpful for other people to hear it. Yeah, okay, so here's one thing that I learned. Um, it's a way longer process than you can possibly imagine. And even though I prepared myself for the long process, it wasn't enough. Like, I should have I should have just sat back and been like, I'm going to exhaust every single resource on this before I, you know, move on to something else. But I, it, it, you do what you can at the time because there comes a point where emotionally you're like, I can't do this anymore. Like your mental health straight up is like, I can't obsess over my email anymore. And I can't, you know, be this roller coaster of someone so excited about it. And they're like, yeah, not for me. You know, so it's just, you got to at some point take your, your own mind and put that where it needs to be. So um, one thing that I did learn is I had, I had a lot of requests. I had something like, I don't know, nine or 10 requests. So the idea was interesting to people. So, that was a learning lesson to me that when I write my next book, which I, you know, when I was writing uh, Primrose, the next one, I knew I had to get a book before I started because I learned that in the querying process that that's the first thing they're going to look at is the hook. And even if your writing is amazing, they still have to be able to sell it. So that's an, I, that's a, a moment where I'm like, okay, I really got to, I got to spend some more time on that. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing is that you're going to get a lot of no's but it doesn't mean that your story 
isn't worth telling or your story's not good enough. And you hear people say this and you're like, yeah, yeah, right. But it is the truth because um, I had two agents that, three, actually I had three agents that loved the story and wanted it. But, there's always a but, right? One, um, she was right. She said, it's it's not women's fiction, it's YA, and I don't rep YA. You know, I love the story, but I don't rep YA. So, she's out. Another one um, really loved the story and, and wanted it, and she said she needed extra time to think about it, but then, ultimately, she's like, I'm just not sure if I can sell it. Okay, there's another one. So, and then the third one um, was really interested and asked for the full, but by that time, I already signed with a small press, and so it was just timing, and she was like, oh, I'm sorry to miss this. I was really excited about it. So, um, you can have 50 no's, but you're going to have that one that loves it and sees the vision for it. And I think I found that agent that I go, okay, I really want to work with her. It just wasn't the right project at the right time. I'm totally okay with that. So remembering that there, it's just about finding that right one who you, you know, believes in your work. Um, and then just being really patient with the process and trusting trusting your work and trusting that you've done everything you can to make this story what it needs to be. And I think for me, you know, I love writing YA historical. It's really, it's what I've sort of, I don't know, been driven to this whole time. But now that I've sort of stepped into historical fantasy, I'm like, okay, now this is the place where I can stay long-term because there's a huge market for it right now. YA historical is a hard sell because that age group wants romance and fantasy. And so you have to be honest with yourself and the the publishing world at large. We talk about this all the time, right? Mm-hmm. This is the nature of the beast. These are the rules. We don't make them. And learning those boundaries of like, this is what is selling right now. And you don't write to market. That's not it. You're writing what calls to you, but you have to listen to what might be more marketable at the time. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're out of time. Yes. But thank you so much for talking to me today and for sharing yeah. your experience, both as well. We didn't really talk about your self publishing, so we'll have to do that another time. No <laughs> so well, you'll have to come back. Yeah, you know, I, I love I love talking books and writing and the writing process, and this is so fun. I love that you're doing this series. Me too. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Carrie. And I'll talk to you in a few minutes when we do our um, other Zoom. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that is all that I have for you today. I apologize for the sound inconsistencies. That is something that I am still working on and hopefully will rectify in the future. Thank you for tuning in today while I talked with historical fiction author Carrie Chappett. If you would like to know more about Carrie, you can visit her website, carriewrites.com. That is K-E-R-R-Y writes.com. I'll also put that link down in the description box so that you can check her out. I will have another interview up in two weeks, so I hope that you'll tune in for that. Until then, take care and keep writing.